It's ironic that Dan mentioned Aristotle in his remarks because the sermon title comes from the old Greek philosopher Socrates. The ancient Socrates defined the noble lie as a parable created for good effect, making the citizens more inclined to care for the state and for one another. His society knew three strata of people, and Socrates believed a contrived parable, asserting the common origin of all, could help keep the peace among those differing peoples. In his parable of the metals, he explained that all people are born of the earth. While the rulers were born mingled with gold, he said, the helpers were mingled with silver, and even the farmers and the craftsmen were honored, made of iron or brass. They were all different, but all from the earth. A common origin implied a worth for all, regardless of one's station in life. This was his noble lie to help keep the peace among the masses. Now, over the centuries, some skeptics have employed the noble lie to explain the role of religion. They say, while religion is not true, it can be a very useful ruse. You know, this fantasy about God, the supposed creator of all things, might be employed usefully among us, especially by those in authority, to strike fear, to prompt obedience, to control the masses. My own friend, the late Dr. Ken Godwin, came very close one day to offending me when he sarcastically made that innuendo. He and an academic colleague who rejected any religious belief but maintained an active role in his Jewish community, those two skeptics were writing a book entitled something like, Why Atheists Need to Go to Church. Now, Ken never claimed to be an atheist outright, but his agnosticism certainly put him within reach. It was kind of like that guy who visited South Georgia that day in the heat of the summer, and he said, well, it's not hell, but I think I can see it from here. For Ken, the essential academician, there did not remain enough empirical evidence to base enthusiasm on any doctrines of the existence of God, but Ken had been raised in the church. Ken, whose alcoholic father had deserted a struggling mother with three young children, Ken, who doubted, was raised in the church, was raised by this church. He never forgot that. The noble lie, which might just be God, Ken said with a kind of wink in his eye, was a story worth propping up, he thought, because of the emotional interpersonal and societal benefit he believed accrued from such belief as a byproduct. Interestingly, Ken's email address was Godwin, capital G, Godwin K at uh, UNCC. God, Godwin K, God wink. And I never knew whether that meant God, uh, God was winking at Ken or Ken was winking at God. Um, but interesting there. I loved Ken Godwin, and I learned a lot from him, but in some ways, Ken's faith had become a victim of his own intellect. It is possible to outsmart God, so to speak, to think yourself into a corner. Loving God with all your mind doesn't mean loving with only your mind. God is big enough for anyone's intellect if you can also give your heart and your soul. So I may have disagreed with Ken's 
academic conclusion about what the word God means in a 21st century world, but I would be willing to make his basic argument even today. Now, I want you to be sure that you understand that I don't believe our faith community is any kind of lie. But for the sake of argument, for the next few moments, let's humor the skeptics. Church as a noble lie that our society needs. Now, I've told you this before, but it's worth repeating. Our sons had the same fourth grade teacher who happened to be a pastor's wife. And she told us as she was getting to know her class, her, her students one year at the beginning of the year, she said, I can pick out the church kids in my class every year, no doubt. This was evident in many ways, she said. They can sit quietly. They are more comfortable addressing adults in the class. They're more comfortable standing before their peers. They can speak more clearly. They've been socialized through worship, through opportunities and children's uh, programs, through choir, to carry themselves. So you don't have to believe in God to see the value of children having a place to learn to behave, we might have said in the old days. You know, for children to behave, to sit, to listen, to interact, to engage, to speak politely and appropriately. I would be glad to fill Sunday school classes across the country with children whose parents brought them for no other reason. Do you understand? Learning to respect one another, to be civil to one another, to learning how to be confident without being arrogant, seems to me like many of our national leaders could use a good dose of children's Sunday school. I believe these effects play out in adults as well. Church makes us more able to see the good in one another, more willing to lend a hand, more suited for life in community, more prone to acknowledge a common good that we should work toward even if it costs us a little something. Now, we can talk about the detrimental effects of bad religion. Not all churches believe the things we believe. But I keep reminding you that the answer to bad religion is not no religion, as some would have us believe. The answer to bad religion is only good religion. So give me a religious society any day. And give me a church in which to raise my own sons and our children. Give me a religious community any day, especially when you are their teachers. Especially when it's a community of inclusiveness and love. Especially when that's their home. I will take that kind of community any day, even if the cynics want to call it a lie. Now, continuing in this line of reasoning, humoring the skeptics, we can apply the same logic to our belief in God. No one knows there's God, right? I mean, we can believe it. We can trust it. We can affirm God, feel God, intuit God. But for every so-called proof of God, the skeptics have another explanation. We cannot prove God. We wouldn't need faith if we could. So all who dare to believe are stepping out on faith, building our lives around the framework of God because we believe it's meaningful to do so. So what does it mean 
in any practical way to believe in God today? What difference does it make in your world? For most of human existence, God was the explanation for everything that was unexplainable. And most of that has now been explained. For most of human existence, belief in God was associated with a fear of the unknown, the uncertainty of the future, the anxiety about death and dying. And for a growing number of those who believe the fear of God is no longer the motivating factor, thanks be to God. And in most times and places, as human beings become self-sufficient, educated, and especially affluent, belief in God diminishes. You know, when most of our needs can be taken care of by the almighty dollar, well, who needs God? And all of that kind of characterizes this congregation, doesn't it? So for us, the educated, the confident, the comfortable, why believe? To believe in God, I think, means in the very most basic way to face the world from an innate sense of appropriate humility. I am not it. I am not all there is. There is an other. Something beyond, something greater. And this primal, organic sense of otherness is world-altering. Beginning in appropriate humility opens human beings to a lifelong, childlike sense of awe and wonder. Anne Lamott says one of the most basic prayers we can pray is just, wow. And Gerard Manley Hopkins has said, the world is charged with the grandeur of God, something other. Implied from and drawing on the fundamental otherness of God is the otherness of all life. Recognition and respect for the natural world, for the animal kingdom, for one another. I don't know a better, healthier framework out of which to begin life, which is all relationship. Out of the foundation of humility comes gratitude. A truly self-sufficient person would have no need, maybe no ability to express gratitude. Gratitude for what? Gratitude why? From the foundation of humility, life grows in gratitude. To believe in God, at least the biblical God, is to have a sense of what the Greeks called telos, that is movement or direction, meaning or purpose. It is to affirm that there is a moral arc, a world and a history that is moving, going somewhere, bending toward justice. God, slowly, patiently, or maybe impatiently but inevitably is with us, bending the world toward justice. To affirm God is to be implicated in that work. We cannot believe and not be moved by injustice move to the work of justice. In his fine book called The Great Partnership, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs says, when you stop believing in God, 
There's no sudden explosion of light or darkness. The world continues on its accustomed course, but something is lost nonetheless, something important that gives life connectedness, depth, and a sense of purpose, that gives you a feeling of participating in something vast and consequential. I want to live in a society whose people are fundamentally anchored by appropriate humility, imbued with a sense of respect for one another, and who are motivated by gratitude to do justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly. It's the kind of society that might justify any kind of lie we needed to tell ourselves. Belief makes a difference in the world, though my mentor, the late Dr. Frank Tupper, used to say, and I've told you this many times, it's become one of my mantras too, I believe in God because I believe in Jesus, not the other way around. In other words, without Jesus, God could be any kind of God, a capricious, vengeful deity. God, the word God could be used to justify vengeance or violence, all manner of bias and injustice. So we need the human face of Jesus, his life, his example to teach us who God is, what God is like. And where did Jesus learn that? When he was a child, his parents took him to church. In keeping with the rituals of their tradition, they went to the temple to dedicate his life, to dedicate their lives to God. Not to some angry deity evoking fear, not to some backward tribalism of superstitious rituals, but to a life blessed by an innate sense of grandeur and goodness and lived in response to that. When the time came, they brought him up to the temple, and when they had finished everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned home, and the child grew and was filled with wisdom and the favor of God. The example of Jesus shows that even if, even if it were based on a noble lie, church would be worth our investment. Even if it were the noblest lie of all, God would be worth our deepest commitment. The old philosopher's idea that noble lie might have a place even in ordering a society today. And just think how much more powerful all of this is because it's no lie at all. Our life in God is the noble lie that's not. May it be so. Amen. Thank you.